You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Aaron Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond's content partner. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Coming up next on SpyCast... It took all in all from the, the, the moment uh, they landed in the beach till the, the moment they were collected by the dinghies uh, of the Chayette 13, 13 uh, Flotilla 13, half an hour exactly. Extraordinary uh, success. This week is our fourth installment of our Israeli intelligence special series, and this week Andrew is joined by Aviram Halevi, former deputy commander-in-chief of Sayeret Matkal, Israel's top-secret elite commando unit. Aviram served over two decades in various branches of Israeli intelligence and co-wrote the book Sayeret Matkal, The Greatest Operations of Israel's Elite Commandos. In this episode, Andrew and Aviram discuss the origins and history of the unit, including the stories of some of Sayeret Matkal's most notable operations, Operation Spring of Youth and the Antebi Raid. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, thanks so much for speaking to me this morning, Avaram. Um, I'm really excited to discuss the history of Sayeret Matkal. So you've got this book out, and I really enjoyed reading it, but it was interesting to me, at the beginning of the book, you say, this is not a military history, this is not about special forces Rambo style, this is about people, this is about colleagues, this is about people who fell in the line of duty. So I just wonder to start off, can you tell me what Sayeret Matkal means to you on a personal level? Uh, it's a very good one, and uh, it's rarely that you know somebody really asks about that aspect of uh, of uh, what what I feel. So I uh, I was you know, I volunteered uh, to say that about forty seven years ago, uh, exactly almost to the date, and uh, I spent there on and off eighteen years or so. Okay, 
the first 18 years of my uh, life as an adult. And uh, uh, it, it means a lot because this year, this period is a very, um, has, has a very strong impression. It tends to uh, kind of um, carve uh, on many, many of my colleagues' um, psyche for almost the rest of their lives. Many times I wonder why, because uh, we usually we are not going through, you know, uh, battles and wars as such, and still the operations we we in, we were involved with or the, the the operations we took part in tend to etch something on almost everybody's uh, heart or and or mind so the, the you know the, it, it's a long long answer to your simple question but uh, it means a lot i mean it uh, it in many uh, many ways it made me what i am how i think i how i operate uh, for better for worse and uh, how i look at things mainly in the sense that we okay the 2,000 odd people that uh, have graduated the service in Sayyid Makal tend to look at, uh, at uh, problems or uh, challenges in life in general. Nothing is impossible to resolve or to uh, get a good answer for. Uh, so you, t- you, 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 you are challenged or life tackles you with a, 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 a big challenge or problem so there is a sequence of of uh, you know uh, subroutines and routines uh, you are trained to think and and uh, and uh, act upon and uh, that therefore i mean the, the result is that you almost never ever say about something that it cannot be done so it's only about you know the the, the resources you invest in the time the effort the the uh, the feelings uh, and the thought and uh, some way or the other it'll be done. You know, it was a simple question, but I think it opens up a lot of rich areas for discussion. Um, so just on the, the making you the person that you are, I know that you're the CEO of a company at the moment. Do you, has the Sayeret Makal is that mentality with you as a, a CEO? Always. Always, it's in the subtext, in the, the sub, uh, in the, uh, um, as I said, in, in in the psyche of what I do, and uh, in, in subconscious, I would say it always there. You know, I tend to look at, at things in a very optimistic way. So uh, it's not about the if, uh, but almost always about the how you. Constantly and uh, as a second nature, look for the ways to resolve things. Never give up. Okay, it's a, it's a never give up approach. Uh, and by which uh, you, you, if this is the approach you take, you are bound to find the solutions. That's that's really fascinating, and I want to go on to discuss the out of the box mindset later in the interview, but. For our listeners, can can we just help our listeners understand 
a little bit more about Sayeret Macau. So could you just tell them what the unit is and when it was founded? Absolutely. Uh, the unit was founded in 1958 in the spirit of and uh, its founder, uh, the late Abraham Arnan, uh, Brigadier General Abraham Arnan. At the time, he was major, a major. Uh, he, looked, he looked after um, David Sterling from the SAS. And uh, the SAS, not only did we stole their uh, emblem and their motto, uh, and they know about it, and they... <laughs> it's a homage, it's not stealing. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a homage, but at the time, and for decades, they did not even know we did. But it, it exactly as you said, it was a great homage to Sterling and his people in the uh, Western Desert during the Second World War, and what they did. I mean, this was the, the, the symbol. They were the people we wanted to, to look like and to be like, and to act like, okay? The, uh, uh, the American equivalent is something that used to be at the time, the Green Beret of the, of the Special Forces in the 60s and the 70s. And currently, I think that the uh, uh, best equivalent, the Navy SEALs or the, the Delta Force rather, okay? Somewhere in between. So the unit was, uh, was uh, uh, established in 1958 without a real calling, as opposed to the others. The S. Sterling knew exactly what he wanted to do once uh, the, the, uh, the SAS was up and running, and even before that, he knew because it was wartime, blah, 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 and uh, he had kind of a, a vision what needs to be done. Not so for Avamanan and in the late 50s, some 15 years or 15 years after the the, 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 the World War uh, ended. So he was looking for, uh, for, for a calling, okay? And uh, not surprisingly, he thought that if there is a, sec- uh, a third round between Israel and the Arab states around it, uh, we're talking about, uh, we're talking uh, about the time after the Suez debacle in 1956, uh, if there uh, was ever a third round of Sayyid Makal should, should do or should act like the, the SAS did in the Western Desert and, uh, and, uh, you know, be able to destroy airfields, uh, Egyptian airfields mainly by, uh, you know, um, uh, helicopter based raids and do much the same, but not by par- parachuting or, uh, you know, uh, Taking a ride with a long, uh, long-range uh, desert group, uh, but you know, to fly with helicopters and so on and so forth. Okay, that did not uh, hold water for long because in the Six Days War, Air Force did the job without our uh, assistance, and you know, assistance was not needed at all. Anyway, soon enough, and since he was part of the intelligence corps, so soon enough, it took four years for Anand to convince his superiors that this uh, adventure is worth its while. Cut a long story short, he was able to convince uh, then the head of, uh, of the, uh, the IDF's in, uh, in, uh, intelligence corps uh, commander, Mayamid, uh, the late Mayamid, that it's worthwhile. Uh, clandestine 
intelligence gathering operations behind enemy lines was uh, given to Sayyid Makal. Uh, it was our prerogative and it was, we were the only ones who were trained, authorized, uh, funded, uh, uh, given the, the torch to bear of uh, clandestine uh, intelligence, clandestine operation. Why do I uh, uh, delve on this so much? Because, uh, uh, for instance, the SAS are, uh, this is not their force, intelligence uh, operations. They, they did their uh, tours in the Malaya, currently in Malaysia, and then, uh, you know, in, in, in Africa and Rhodesia. And of course, in the, in the uh, 1982 war down south in the Atlantic. So it was, uh, they act as special forces. And of course, late, later on in, in the uh, Arab desert in, in Iraq, in, uh, on, the, on the first uh, Gulf War, the second Gulf War, all of them. But not necessarily do they, uh, any, any intelligence operations are not their first and foremost uh, calling, okay? They may know how to do that, but this is first, first of all, they are very, very good soldiers, very, very good uh, kind of elite unit of the uh, special forces. And, you know, they act as such. They're much the same, the Americans, okay? They have better, uh, you know, funding and they, they have uh, uh, the, the high command ears and so on especially since the JSOC was founded back in the, in the 90s, late 90s. And here, it's the opposite. Sayyid Matkar is first and foremost an intelligence uh, uh, gathering or intelligence gathering operations, uh, clandestine operations unit. And only after that, we are a city unit, like the book suggests. Okay. So this is, a. Uh, uh, I hope the listeners can understand, uh, they, 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 of course, can, can read more about it in the book and in other publications uh, that, that's been around, uh, you know, f- uh, for many years. But this is the, the main difference. I mean, we are an intelligence uh, gathering unit, clandestine uh, intelligence operations. And that's one of the things that I find really fascinating about it, because special operations and intelligence Sometimes they touch each other. Sometimes there's a little bit of overlap. But in the case of Sayeret and Macau, this is their primary function uh, and the other functions come after that. So so I find that really, really interesting. And and, and so for Sayeret and Macau, um, uh, the general staff's reconnaissance unit, so do they report to the head of a man, Israel's military intelligence, or do they report directly to the to the chief of staff, or, or is that a combination of both? A combination of both, but uh, primarily the, the head of uh, the intelligence corps is a direct commander of the commander of the unit. And, uh, you know, he uh, kind of uh, screens, do the screening, what's, uh, uh, what's, what's to be uh, uh, presented to the general command and the chief of staff of, uh, of the IDF. But uh, it just so happened that because these are sensitive operations, tend to be sensitive operations, uh, they are not only presented to the um, uh, IDF's uh, chief of staff, but 
you know, a, 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 an operation commander in the field is usually needs or required uh, to present the essence of a specific uh, operation to the prime minister as well and the minister of defense before it. So uh, we as uh, very young officers are kind of accustomed to speak to the higher command uh, in uh, rather frequently every three, four months. And we're, we can go on to discuss this later, but quite a few chiefs of staff and prime ministers have have also been in Sayeret Mark Cal at one point, right? Yes, and this is kind of a, it's a riddle. It's really a riddle. I don't think there is a, a unit this size in the world out of which uh, came three prime ministers and uh, four or five, depends how you count exactly, chiefs of staff, let alone ministers, heads, three heads of Mossad, including the, the current one, two heads of uh, uh, General Security Agency, Shabak. The only explanation I can come up with is it's related uh, to what I said before. I mean, these, these people are not only are they problem solvers, okay? We do not wait for orders to come to us to tell us what to do. We come with proposals and we tend to look at, to, to take on us the biggest questions or the biggest problems we can imagine uh, regarding what, what is in uh, the state of Israel interest and the IDF's interest and the, in the intelligence core interest, that's, that's natural. And yes, I think that, uh, you know, these questions has been asked many times and uh, there is no really sufficient answer to that. Why? And, and you know, what, what makes it uh, so unique? But the fact is that these people, and you mentioned that before, uh, we are not Rambos and there is no Ramboism in the unit in Sayyid Makkal. On the contrary, the basic building block of the Sayyid is the team, okay? The, uh, the team is what you're kind of uh, imprinted with once you get drafted, and this will be your, uh, your designation forever, okay? I'm team Raz, Raz was my commander, and my 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 soldiers are a team of Yoram for the rest of their lives. Okay, so a team is a team team work, team thinking, blah blah blah, uh, uh, is the essence. And these are not they are individuals, but they know how to operate in tandem with uh, or in, with many other units, people. And how big is Sayeret Mark Cal? Is that classified? In my time, it, it was, you know, 40-something years ago, it was 200 people, 250 people. So it's a few hundreds, I guess. I don't know exactly. But it's a, it's not a, it, it's a large unit. Uh, it, it's not something very impressive in, in the UK or USA uh, terms. It's a, it's a unit some, somewhere between a battalion and a regiment. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Let's just move on to discuss some of the, you know, in the book you discuss lots of the operations. Is there one at the beginning that you think is really foundational for Sayeret Matkal or or one in the book that you think, here's, if any of our listeners want to look something up, have a look at this. If I need to choose, I think the Spring of Youth, operated in 1973, is a second. I mean, if I had to choose these two, represent greatly uh, the, both the spirit and the capability of sale. So could you speak a little bit more about Spring of Youth and maybe you can speak about the uh, Munich Olympics and how it ties into that? Okay, so yes, the, the, the Spring of Youth, uh, that, that was, um, uh, that it was a raid in the city of Beirut, uh, the, the capital of Lebanon, and it was uh, uh, done April uh, 1973, 1973, but and and it was the 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 pinnacle of a series of uh, assassinations uh, of the people who were both responsible or planned or enacted the um, 1972 Summer Olympics uh, massacre, uh, during which uh, 11 uh, athletes and uh, trainers and uh, and uh, referees were abducted by uh, the Black September operatives that uh, infiltrated into the uh, Olympic uh, village, took them hostages, and, uh, you know, while, while the games kept going, uh, you know, and, and, and a, a horrendous, uh, uh, you know, act uh, that we won't talk much about now, the German police, the Bavarian uh, uh, German police, uh, failed miserably in trying to release them or to to uh, to, to act upon the the, uh, the terrorists. Uh, Eleven athletes were killed and burned in the two helicopters, uh, while everybody, from the head of Mossad and the ministers of the uh, federal German uh, government uh, looking with and uh, and uh, whatever they, they they could have done they did not 
by the way, Sayyid Matkal at the time uh, suggested or, or kind of, uh, you know, suggested to Golda Meir and to uh, the head of Mossad and to Moshe Dayan, uh, the Minister of Defense, to, you know, help uh, uh, release uh, the hostages. We, uh, Ehud Barak was the, the uh, commander of the unit, and he was absolutely sure that uh, he and his people can do that, but uh, the, the, the Germans would not allow them even to hop on a plane and, uh, and uh, land in, uh, in Munich. Okay, so that, uh, that event was an earth-shaking event in a sense that uh, it really started a war. It wasn't a real war, but six, seven, or eight operatives that took place, uh, that took part in, in planning or executing uh, that uh, horrendous uh, operation of the Black September found their uh, their fate in uh, European cities, in Paris, in in uh, in, uh, in Rome, uh, in Belgium, in uh, Larnaca, in uh, Cyprus, and and so on and so forth. Then, in, uh, a, a very capable intelligence officer in the Mossad found out that three of the of uh, Yasser Arafat uh, uh, deputies, uh, three uh, high of high office executives of the PLO live in Beirut in the two high rises uh, next to one another. He said, he kind of, he, he said, okay, it can be done by the Mossad, but the Mossad said, no, we can't do that. We cannot uh, make sure that our operatives would uh, uh, find their way back uh, in retreat safely. So they, uh, they uh, took to the, to the army and uh, at the same time, the, the, uh, that uh, uh, intelligence officer found his counterpart in Sayyid Matkal and told him, this is the situation, so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we think, and El Barak's response was, of course, yes, we, can, we think we can do that. Uh, the only thing we need is uh, uh, information about uh, exactly what the buildings look like, uh, either a concierge uh, in the, in the, uh, at, the, at, the, at the entrance, what uh, kind of switches uh, you use to to light uh, to to uh, you know uh, uh, lights off and on and off, and if possible, the the uh, internal design of uh, of each and every uh, apartment. And the Mossad supplied all of that, and then some. And, uh, and in the meantime, uh, Sayyid Matkal uh, with El Barak and other other famous people like like Muki Betzer, Miram Levine, Yoni Netanyahu, start training. Uh, they train for maybe two weeks at all to raid those buildings. It was a kind of a, uh, an operation that had to be done by landing from the sea. Okay, Beirut is a is a is a, a city on on a beach. And it's a, it's a big city, so you can't just go there from the Israel-Lebanon border. Israeli uh, IDF's Navy uh, ships brought the, the, the raiding uh, parties to the uh, to landing landing uh, beaches inside Beirut. Really, I mean, they could see the hotels that on the promenade, a few hundred yards uh, um, from the, the place. They landed. Mossad's uh, operatives rented cars, so they took them from the beach to where the uh, uh, the, the high rises, where the 
the, the objectives resided about five, six miles drive, 18 people at all, uh, in, in total, uh, and uh, they raided the buildings. They killed all their objectives without harming, well, not harming intentionally, but uh, yeah, there, were, uh, there were two or three bystanders uh, that, that got, got in, in the line of fire, uh, and some uh, police, poli- uh, uh, Lebanese policemen. It took all in all from the the, the moment uh, they landed in the beach up to the uh, until the, the moment they were collected by the uh, dinghy dinghies uh, of the Shayet uh, Thirteen, the Thirteen Flotilla Thirteen, half an hour exactly. This is like the Navy SEALs Flotilla Thirteen, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, half an hour, uh, uh, extraordinary uh, success, and uh, the uh, the kind of uh, the new thing about it, apart from the surprise uh, raid, was the cooperation with the Mossad. Okay, it was the first time that Sayyid Makal uh, really uh, uh, a joint operation with the Mossad operatives. There were seven operate seven Mossad operatives. Uh, taking pra- part uh, in this uh, raid, including a uh, a woman operative that uh, resided there for weeks before, actually to uh, look for the indication that uh, the objectives were really in their uh, flats uh, during the raid or before the raid. So it was very uh, uh, not only sophisticated, but it was the first time. For, uh, that that uh, uh, Mossad and Sayyid Matkal uh, kind of uh, put hand, hand in hand together and uh, it was a successful on all accounts. This maybe gets at, you know, some of the, the things that are specific to Israel because of uh, the context, because of the region, because of its neighbours. Um, so, say the the British or the Americans generally, uh, their special uh, operations don't get deployed into neighboring countries because it would be seen as a provocation or an escalation. Um, so you would maybe have in, intelligence do, officers doing it because you know then it's still civilian. It's not it's not people that are in uniform. Um, the only exception I can think of maybe is the the Osama bin Laden raid where the Navy SEALs went into uh, Pakistan. But generally speaking, that doesn't happen. But Israel, Asayarit and Matt Kal are in a different position because of the regional context and because uh, the, some of the countries that surround it, like Lebanon, Hezbollah, you know, that's there's not a, there's not a strong state that's got a monopoly of violence within uh, Lebanon. So, so Syriac, Mark Cal, and Israel are in a different regional position. So, I think that that's quite interesting. It is, and you you described it uh, correctly. I think that the Entebbe operation was the exception here because it was a raid uh, that took place uh, uh, twenty five hundred miles off the shores and the, the borders of Israel, which is really something that uh, nobody was not only accustomed to, but nobody thought it can be done until it was done. Okay, so this was the exception in, in this case, but you are absolutely right. When our neighbors are mostly our enemies, except for the Egyptians and the Jordanians 
which we have uh, peace agreements with, and they are kind of out of the equation. They, they are not uh, considered enemies anymore, okay? But Hezbollah, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, depends how you look at it, and Iran, which is a kind of a third, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not really, the proximity is not really there, okay? Uh, they, they don't have any, any mutual uh, borderline with Israel, neither does Iraq, but uh, Iraq is, uh, is about, I don't know, 500 kilometers, uh, three, 400 miles from Israel. And Iran is about uh, a thousand miles off Israel. And so, so it's kind of uh, beyond the horizon, but still there. The Entebbe, Entebbe operation was in, in that regard, a very uh, unique, different one. And the truth is to be told that, uh, you know, it couldn't, it couldn't, have been dreamed of if there wasn't uh, a single person in, in the Air Force that kind of uh, mumbled to himself under his mustache, you know, if we land uh, in mid- at midnight without uh, telling anybody, let alone the, the tower, uh, and uh, we won't uh, communicate with, with it, and uh, we won't, uh, you know, turn on uh, uh, the uh, signaling lights, then who would know? Uh, it's so far-fetched. Then who would know? And he was right. And that was the, the kind of turning point in the pre-planning stage of the, of the operation that kind of uh, shook everybody and at the same time aligned them with the, with the, the course that, uh, um, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, you know, uh, proved to be the, the correct one. And, and I would like to discuss Entebbe a little more. Just before we get there, though, for Operation Spring of Youth, you mentioned Ehud Barak as the as the commander at that point, and he's a really fascinating figure. Uh, he goes on to become the Prime Minister of Israel. Uh, I believe that he's either the most decorated officer uh, in Israeli history or one of the most decorated officers in Israeli history. Did you interview him for your book? Have you ever met him? Um, I'm assuming he's something of a legend within the Sayeret Matkal community. Well, I, I know him well, and uh, we speak frequently, uh, you know, almost once a week. Uh, we oh, have, wow. We're not friends. I don't think he has friends as such, because he's... Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, well, we speak a lot because uh, I, you know, uh, I serve as the uh, legacy or the, the heritage torchbearer of, of Sayyid Matkal. And as such, I, I get to meet all the, uh, the, 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 the veterans. Uh, and uh, since he was, you know, he was uh, chief of staff, he was prime minister, he was minister of defense. And, uh, you know, uh, 50 years ago, he was uh, uh, the, the, the unit commander. So we get to talk a lot about, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of... Uh, Made a documentary, an internal documentary, in which he, you know, he kind of he describes and then tells the, the 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 story behind the story. So yes, I know him very well, and uh, we talk a lot. Uh, I think that he is uh, very difficult to overestimate his contribution to the planning or the, the thinking and planning side of the unit's uh, uh, mindset, okay? And he did that, he, he, he began doing that as a, you know, very young officer when he was 20, 21, back in the early 60s, 
when he was a, really the mastermind of how to plan and execute a, a, a really clandestine intelligence operation. But he has a very, very uh, creative mind. Therefore, uh, in the spring of youth, I mean, to, uh, for him to come up uh, with the idea that uh, all 18 uh, soldiers would, uh, would wear uh, civilian clothes and he specifically would wear uh, women clothes uh, was not something uh, uh, out of the box as such, but a kind of a way of, uh, uh, I mean, to match the, uh, the required uh, details so the operation, uh, 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 to, to maximize the operation's uh, chances to succeed, okay? It's, it's, it's not something that uh, very odd to him because it was the, the, the right thing to, uh, to be done. By the way, as opposed to what the then uh, Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, thought. I mean, you, he, he, he was in the, in the mood, kind of, your soldiers wore uniforms, okay? And they told him, no, this, this will not be good enough. Okay, that's kind of to tell you the differences. So yes, he was, uh, uh, I, th- I don't think he, he thinks that people should admire him. On the opposite, uh, he, he likes people who speak their mind and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, not quarrel with him, but, you know, uh, kind of uh, counter uh, his uh, commanding uh, uh, thoughts. Uh, so, so uh, uh, a, a very intelligent person, and as such, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it puts uh, the, uh, the bar on a on a very high uh, standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, our listeners should also know that you went on to become the deputy commander of Cyret Matkow, right? Yes, that was, yeah. uh, as you can see from the uh, from my hair. <laughs> uh, it's been a while. Uh, it was uh, that was that was the position I held about 30 years ago, 33 or so. Uh, yes, and it was a very, um, not only interesting times, and we don't have the time to get into all the, all the operations uh, that took place at the time, uh, uh, notably uh, operations, that, uh, kind of abduction operations, uh, um, you know, that, that, we, uh, that we did in so Entebbe. Yeah, Entebbe. So we go on to, you know, one of the, the most famous operations that Sayeret and Matt Cal have been involved in. As you said, a huge logistical challenge, two and a half thousand miles away in a country that you've never operated in before. Uh, so just tell us a little bit more about that raid. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to make this about former prime ministers of Israel, but Benjamin Netanyahu was in Sayeret and Matt Cal at one point. And for Entebbe, it was his brother, Jonathan, that, that was leading it. Um, so just, just go on to discuss uh, Entebbe, please. Tell our listeners a little bit more about, about the, the more operational part of that. Okay, the background was that the Air France uh, jet was abducted uh, on June 27th, 1976, on its way from, uh, from Tel Aviv, Athens, to Paris, and was redirected to... Benghazi in, uh, in uh, Libya and then to Entebbe in Uganda. Uh, Uganda was then ruled by 
a dictator uh, named Idi Amin. In his early years, he was a friend of Israel, but then he opted for uh, the PLO and uh, served their purposes in hosting both the, uh, the, the abductors, the terrorists, uh, there were four of them, uh, uh, we knew later, and uh, uh, 150 odd people, out of which 50 non-Jewish, non-Israeli were released after three, four days and uh, uh, were flown to Paris, uh, France, uh, uh, which was an... Uh, um, an opportunity for us to uh, uh, debrief them and understand uh, where the hostages are, how many uh, people caught them, how many terrorists, uh, who are them, where are they, what's what's the uh, what's it like? Okay, because you know we talk in 1976, there aren't uh, there, there is no internet, there is no there are no cell phones, no uh, commu- uh, t- uh, satellite communication, nothing at all. Uh, so uh, uh, it was mostly human-based uh, intelligence, okay? And as, as, as I said before, it took the IDF and Israel, uh, uh, the Israeli government, about three, four days to come up with a, uh, a plan, uh, and before that, to come up with the will to do something, uh, as opposed to negotiate and, uh, and release uh, hostages or uh, release uh, Prisoners, uh, as the uh, the uh, terrorists asked. Cut a long story short, there are about three uh, important, uh, utmost important decisions that were made uh, uh, made this uh, uh, operation real. First and foremost, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin' decision to go for it. Okay, it took him a lot of time. And a lot of convincing and a lot of uh, understanding what I- what intelligence do we have that uh, uh, will maximize the chances for uh, to 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 succeed in this uh, really out of reach, out of uh, very far uh, unheard of uh, 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 threats of many kinds. So the decision to go for it is the uh, the. Is the first. The second is uh, was 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 taken by uh, the Air Force uh, uh, Chief Benny Pellet, the late uh, Benny Pellet, when he decided that this can be done by uh, C-130 uh, transporter uh, cargo planes that will go above their capacity uh, as uh, Lockheed, you know, written in the, in, the, in, the, in the books. To do that and to land uh, in dark uh, was the the hierarchy is a second, but it's a most uh, it, it's a, it's a real operational decision that he took and he ordered his pilots to do so and to do so and uh, that, that that was it. And third, fighting capability of the forces that were led by Sayyid Matkal. There uh, were sixty three. Uh, Sayyid Makkal operatives in this, uh, this operation. 32 of them raided the terminal, the old terminal in, in Entebbe, and they were the best soldiers there are, the best soldiers that can be, uh, that Israel could supply at the time. They were at their peak. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Yoni Netanyahu and his, uh, uh, officers 
really uh, cherry-picked only the best soldiers they were absolutely sure could do the uh, uh, could do it uh, on, on you know on the, on the be successful in a uh, in an operation with a uh, tons of unknown unknowns and uh, uncertainties from here to eternity uh, and and they were sure that they can do it still okay. So the, the, the operation itself was a very tactical raid. Not much really to talk about, uh, except for, except for the sad fact that the, the unit commander, the commander of the operation on the unit's behalf, Yonin Tanyao, was killed by probably Ugandan uh, soldiers that were abundant in the area because it's a, it's a, it's a small war. It's a, it's a, the, the, there is a battle to 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 fight, and uh, no one can control all the bullets that are flying around. One hundred and four hostages were rescued. Three died. Uh, two in the in three in the operation, and one uh, old lady in a hospital. She she weren't there. Okay, but she they either killed her later. Or she got sick and, and died uh, out of that. And the fact that uh, it, it was successful, okay, because the, 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 uh, the threat was nulled and void by this, uh, by this raid. And it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, accentuated by two things. First of all, as I said, Yonin Tanyao was killed. Second, it was uh, it just so happened that uh, six hours later, uh, the bicentennial... Uh, uh, the, the U.S. bicentennial uh, ceremony ceremonies uh, started. It was the 200, uh, 200 uh, years of independence the same day. So it kind of all helped uh, for uh, to 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 make this uh, operation what it was. It was really uh, something that most people who took part in it started to understand how great it was ten years after the fact. Okay, until that. You know, it was another operation for them, but you know, it, it grew up on, on, on them. And, uh, currently or, you know, decades, decades later, they all came to the uh, realization that they better either write their memoirs about it, which we uh, published, uh, in another book, uh, about seven years ago, or, you know, sit in front of a uh, camera and tell the story for, generations for families and then friends and so on and so forth. So it was really uh, a, you know, mind-changing uh, operation. And at the same time, it was, you know, 1976, Israel, three years after the Yom Kippur War, kind of, it helped the, the, the national uh, self-pride. Mm-hmm. And how many soldiers were on the Entebbe raid in total? A few, uh, I think uh, 250 or so. Okay. 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 Wow. Troopers, uh, other uh, uh, um, brigades, uh, tons of uh, of uh, uh, doctors and and uh, you know uh, uh, paramedics and, and all that, and of course uh, all the uh, the air force uh, units and pilots and and uh, and their so so total about. 200, 250 or so. And how many of them were Sayeret Matkal? 65. 
And I've got this great quote by a well-known British military historian, Richard Holmes. He says that Entebbe Raid is one of the great classic examples of success of special operations forces. I think he's right. I mean, um, you know, uh, there are many raids and uh, the, the, it's, it's a kind of a head-scratching uh, problem for historians because uh, you have to take each and every occurrence uh, in, his, uh, in its uh, context. I mean, uh, uh, special operations during World War II or even, you know, uh, Japan-Chinese war in Manchuria. I mean, they may be uh, a, you know, there can be a lot, of, a lot to learn from them, but uh, ever trying to compare uh, operations like they do with uh, sportsmen or singers or so, it's really something you cannot. I mean, not only is it, uh, you know, to try to compare oranges to uh to apples, the, the, the context, the timing, the situation, the, the, the overall, the context, okay, is so different that, yeah, they, 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 they probably all are great operations. I mean, th- there isn't uh, uh, an, an Olympic uh, uh, or a World Cup of uh, special operations, <laughs> okay? Yeah, you see, you see these YouTube videos, you know, what would happen if the SAS fought Delta Force and things like that? Yeah, so there's no there's no World Cup for it. Yeah, you remember uh, Bravo to Zero, right? The, yeah, the yeah. Book. It's it's almost a hoax, or not a hoax, but it's kind of a you know the the these operations are are uh, they they have enough uh, merit, so you don't need to ridicule them. I mean, uh, it, it's it's a uh, it's a you know the people's lives, so. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean, and and just to bring it up to uh, closer to our, to our own period. So we've discussed those two classic uh, examples from the seventies: uh, Operation Spring of Youth and Operation Yonatan. Uh, Maybe we can speak about uh, the the operation to get Nakshan Wax the Waxman. That's, an, That's the final chapter in the book. Yes. First of all, it just tell you, tells you that uh, many CT counterterrorism uh, um, operations that the unit is responsible for since, and this this is about thirty years ago uh, almost. And uh, because uh, first of all, there are there are other units, namely the Yamab, the police uh, special forces unit that really took over many of. <laughs> the occurrences in the West Bank and uh, either civilian or uh, or uh, uh, terror-related uh, uh, operations. So uh, maybe the next book will be theirs, okay? Because they, they are really a great unit, more like uh, a, a, a big SWAT team of, uh, I don't know, NYPD or Chicago PD or, or, or LAPD, well-equipped and well-trained, and uh, they have their own merits. So the last time we had a chance to, uh, uh, or that there was a, an, an, an abduction operation we were involved in, was in 1994. A uh, Golani soldier war was abducted by Hamas. Then kind of, not unknown, but uh, kind of almost unknown organization 
that wanted to uh, to get to the front pages and uh, get it, uh, its uh, cause known and talked about, publicized, they abducted a, uh, uh, a soldier on his way home for, you know, weekly vacation. And uh, for two or three days, nobody knew where he was, uh, uh, where they kept him. Okay? They... Uh, the Hamas uh, uh, misled us to believe that they kept him in the in Gaza Street, while all the time uh, they were in the West Bank near Ramallah, 20 minutes off Jerusalem, not far, not uh, not uh, far from there. Okay, only about well, 15 hours before uh, uh, ultimatum was was up on Friday. October 14th, uh, 1994, we were noticed that this is a situation and uh, we better uh, head to that area. Uh, so the unit went on and uh, sent uh, its, uh, its uh, avant-garde uh, before it to, to reconnaissance the area to, to see what it's like uh, and uh, get as much information about, about the, the house. He was, he was kept uh, by three uh, terrorists, three Hamas uh, people. Uh, what the surrounding like it was kind of a you know a country area uh, uh, without with, with no uh, close uh, buildings uh, or uh, apartments uh, around. I mean about few hundred yards uh, isolated of fields and then and orchards uh, around it. We know it was all about surprise. If we surprise them then we might be able to rescue the soldier, Watson, Akshan. If not, the terrorists will have enough time to kill him. It's a three versus one. He was kept in an in a internal uh, isolated uh, room with no uh, external uh, uh, walls or, uh, or other outlets. So it was really about the surprise. Uh, cut a long story short, uh, uh, not an hour maybe before the ultimatum was was up, uh, the unit was split into three forces uh, that were um, did the way in a stealth mode. Uh, it was dusk, okay, just before uh, sunset, uh, or right uh, uh, just about after sunset, uh, because we we prefer to operate. In nighttime, uh, we we like the the, the nighttime, and uh, we we you know darkness is a friend, uh, as uh, we used to say. So all three teams found their way to their uh, opening or kind of uh, the points from which they can get in upon uh, the countdown, and upon the, the countdown, all went in encountered heavy fire such that uh, one of the uh, one one of the teams its leader was killed and eight of the uh, team members uh, were wounded by a salvo that uh, salvos that were uh, um, uh, aimed to them by one of the terrorists uh, who naturally could place himself in a, in a in a strategic position to to do just that Okay. Not only that, uh, some of the, the other team 
was kind of uh, uh, head on with the first one. So they shot one another and some other soldiers were, were wounded. But they could not get fast enough to the inner room where they kept uh, uh, the abducted the soldier. And once they, they got there, uh, terrorists uh, locked the door from the inside. They did not care much about uh, getting killed themselves. So once, uh, so, so when, when you're dealing with, with these kind of people, it's, it's, uh, only harder to deal with because they don't care about themselves. So, uh, if they die, okay. If they don't, uh, the better, but uh, they, they don't really care. So they, 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 uh, were successfully in locking, uh, two, two of the, of the terrorists with the Nachshon Vaxman in the inner room. And it took us about, Two minutes to, to break in, uh, with explosives because we couldn't just, uh, break uh, the, the lock, uh, and, uh, open it in a, in a cold manner. Uh, in the meantime, they, they, they killed the soldier. They were killed, uh, also. And, uh, this was a, a real loss because not only did we lose him, I mean, the, the, did, did we not succeed in rescuing the, the abducted soldier? We lost, uh, uh, one of, uh, of the lead officers who led one of one of the team and uh, one of the teams and uh overall it was you know not only the retrospect in, in real time we knew it's not an operation with uh, high chances of success uh and that was you know it was 1994 the uh all tv cameras were aimed they were not there but uh, you know the, the whole country was uh waiting to see the re- what the, what the result of the abduction might be ultimatum was up everybody knew that and uh, there was a press conference uh, <clears throat> right after that uh, prime minister rabin took full responsibility not that it mattered to anybody uh, barack was uh, chief of staff and uh, you know uh, we knew it it's it, it's a very um, complicated situation. We knew uh, the chances to work low, but you always want to be successful, certainly in this kind of, uh, you know, life or death or, or operation. And we were not. I mean, this uh, affected the, in years to come, uh, the way we thought about how, how to resolve such situ- situation in, in the, in the future, both on the, uh, um, munition, on the explosives and the methodology, on the training. Uh, on, uh, you know, how to break in, uh, uh, reinforced uh, doors, internal, external, all that. Luckily, uh, it, it did not come to, uh, and we, we did not need to prove it later on. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe this was the, the best, the, the best part of it. It's quite insidious the way that they captured, um, the soldier, I believe that he was hitchhiking and they stopped and they had kippas on and they were playing Hasidic music and, and so forth and he got in the car and then that's how they they got him. So that I think that that's just the, as we get towards the end of the interview, I just wanted to ask, for that case there with the soldier, he was kept in an inner room. Do you think that that's because the people that Sayarite Matkal and forces like them have been going up against are studying 
what Sire or Metcalf have done in the past? I mean, do you think that they're going to be buying copies of your book and so forth? Uh, not necessarily Sarah McCall, but, but uh, you know, the, uh, it was the mid-90s, so enough information about hostages' uh, situation around the world was available, in the, not, not in, in the internet. The internet was not, uh, or did not exist uh, much at the time, at least in Israel. There was enough information around to learn from. And uh, not only was it uh, information, it was not only that, it was also common sense. I mean, uh, they knew how past operations, counterterrorism operations uh, are uh, operated, or, uh, or at least uh, I mean, the, 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 the concept of opera- operation. Uh, uh, for instance, in, I mean, the fact that you get in, that we get in, uh, from all available uh, entrances is a well-known one. I mean, it's not a secret. They must have known that as well and prepared for. So, yes, I'm sure we all kind of, uh, in retrospect, in the debriefing that took place after the operation, uh, it was a common understanding that they knew what they are, what they will be up against, and they did their best. I mean, they reinforced walls and doors and uh, locks and all that, they knew maybe not exactly what to, to, to expect, but, but roughly and generally they did. 30 years later, with all the knowledge and books and movies and then the uh, articles in the internet all over, they know what to expect. Absolutely. And what years were you in Sayeret Matkal Avaram? Was it 76, you said? 1991, 1992. Yes. It would be fascinating to speak more about the training of Sayeret Makal, but that would take uh, quite some time. I know that the training culminates in a, a four-day beret march, uh, 75 miles. The beret is a symbol. We, I mean, the beret you get way before that, so it's not the, the beret. It's the insignia. Uh, that you, insignia, okay. That you never wear. You, you never wear. You get it and you put it in the in the drawer, <laughs> okay. uh, which which is the same as uh, the SAS. So very close. Everybody that that gets there, uh, every from the team, the squads, finalizing their eighteen months training course or training uh, session. It ends after you know reading some uh, proverbs and all that, and uh, you know um, uh, getting the, this uh, emblem and, and a book or. Uh, uh, so everybody puts their uh, uh, backpacks uh, off, uh, put their um, uh, uh, magazine with uh, tracers, okay? And everybody, uh, upon, uh, upon the order, opens fire in, uh, in unison. So, uh, you know, 10, 15 people in unison empty their magazines towards uh, the north, which is, you know, a void in the, in the, in the Dead Sea. And if the Jordanians are aware on their gun, they would know that another team of Sayed Makal has uh, uh, con- uh, concluded their, <laughs> Graduated. their, their um, um, training. But, you know, that, that, uh, I'm kidding, of course. Wow. So you hear about the unit, you join, but then you go on your first, you know, act of operation and... I'm assuming that that's a formative experience. So can you just tell us a little bit more about what that was like for you? 
most of uh, uh, the experience we uh, we go through is related to cross-border, quiet, clandestine operations, which is a totally different uh, state of mind as opposed to counter-terrorism. Counter-terrorism operations are few and far between, and uh, they are not the rule. They are the exception. The rule uh, is, is a, a very quiet, in the dark, as I said, intelligence clandestine operations that, you know, it's very difficult to, to describe what you go through, but mainly it's a, it's a sense of what I need to do, what I need to do, what I need to do now, what I need to do next, where my commander is, uh, who am I looking uh, for, and what's my position in the uh, column, if, uh, if it's a um, uh, by foot operation. So it's a, it's a very... Um, kind of operational uh, cut-to-the-chase uh, uh, mindset, not much room for fear or anything like that. Mostly you think about the next time you ha- you have a, you, you'll have a break and have some water to drink. Uh, and uh, this is uh, the mindset. Uh, you, you, you are very uh, focused on what to do, what to do now and what you need to do in case something happened, something like this, like, like that, or the other. So it's a very functional uh, state of mind. N- not, not much room uh, for fear, as I said, because it is not D-Day on Normandy. It's something else completely. Uh, it's a totally different mindset. Therefore, uh, people who are in, 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 in a war, or fought uh, uh, the ways uh, the way uh, in 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 battles. These are way way they they have experienced a way more extreme uh, situation, and uh, the glory is for them, not necessarily for us. Well, this has been a, a really fascinating discussion, Avram. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Um, we should close out speaking about your book. So originally out in Hebrew, but it's now out in English. Can you just tell the listeners when it came out and tell them a little bit about the book? Uh, the book, we, uh, which was written uh, by my colleague and friend, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure. He, he's the writer. Okay, he's the real author. I do the research. I interview the people in, in question and uh, kind of organize all the materials for him to write. Uh, the stories. Okay. So this is, uh, the, the division between us. And, uh, this has been the third book we've done together. And, uh, there are two in the, in the making, uh, since. Okay. And the, 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 the thinking behind it was that as opposed to other books of this kind, this is one that's been written by the people who were there. Okay. We are both uh, combatants, uh, uh, we were both combatants in the units, and uh, we bring a uh, what we think is a special point of view, uh, as opposed to uh, uh, outside people like journalists or, or uh, professional writers, authors. And this is uh, the, uh, the 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 angle we wanted to uh, to bring forth for for the reader. And I think that uh, uh, the reader can really experience as you. Uh, as you said correctly, uh, what is what is the spirit of the unit? What uh, what uh, the people in it are like? 
uh, and what they are, uh, what they are like not, uh, and or what they are not. And uh, out of this, uh, we we feel that the unit spirit speaks itself uh, in in a way that uh, that uh, that's both uh, um, you know we 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 can be proud of, and uh, uh, the operations that uh, we we took part in and the others were justified at the time and uh, uh, were the right thing to do, and. Uh, that's why it's, uh, it was important for us to, to write the book and uh, bring it to the public. Thanks ever so much for your time, Avram. This, is, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show is the final installment of our Israeli intelligence special series. It'll be a double bill featuring Slomo Mofaz, the former head of counterterrorism analysis for the IDF, and Zohar Palti, the former head of intelligence for Mossad. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL Spycast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com slash podcasts slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anakwa, Ariel Samuel, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum. <laughs>